Welcome to the Ram Iyer Podcast with your host, Ram Iyer, thought leader, author, keynote speaker, workshop leader, and mentor. Listen to his engaging conversations with experts from across the world and his personal insights that will help you create a better life, become more successful, and achieve your personal greatness. Now, here's Ram! Welcome to Business Thinking Radio. I'm Ram Ayer, your host and president of the Business Thinking Institute in Princeton. Today, we have an absolute treat. We have Dr. Marshall Goldsmith. Many people have theories of what it takes to succeed in life and in business. Some are based on a person's limited experience, some on the knowledge of others, or just simply opinion. Some others survey a large group of people and glean insights. Few have the opportunity to speak to thousands of people and glean insights into what helps people succeed or fail. Today in Marshall, we have somebody who has extensive knowledge and experience, and I'm sure he's done lots of surveys, and he has also spoken to thousands of people, and not just spoken, but he's coached several thousand people, and he's gleaned insights from them. So when it comes to succeeding in enterprises, profit or non-profit, there are few people like Marshall Goldsmith the preeminent executive coach. He is the pioneer behind the use of 360 feedback. He has written 38 books, including the latest one with Sally Helgeson, How Women Write. He has an MBA from Indiana University, the Kelly School of Business, and a PhD from UCLA. He currently teaches in Dartmouth's executive education program and travels around the globe giving talks and running workshops. So welcome, Marshall. Very, very nice to talk to you. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely, absolutely. So you've written 38 books, and you said you've sold about 2.5 million copies, including your biggest bestseller, What Got You Here mm. Won't Get You There. Mm. What inspired you to collaborate with Sally to write this book, How Women Rise? Well, it was kind of an accident. An acquaintance of ours, Mike Dolworth, sent an email to Sally and I and said, you know, Marshall's book, What Got You Here Won't You There? was really more focused on men's issues. You should write a book like that, but really more specifically focused on women's issues. And, you know, it really paused me to think. I think he, he made an excellent point because probably 85% of the CEOs I've coached have been men. And, again, the ones who have not been men, some of them have had characteristics more similar to men, probably. So I thought about it. I thought, he's got a good point. And then I realized work in women's groups, teaching classes for women, and I always found certain issues came up with women that were different than men. Sally is the world's expert in dealing with women in leadership so, and a good friend of mine. We've known each other 21 years. So I talked to Sally. I said, what do you think? And Sally said, well, let's do it. And, you know, she's the lead author. She actually wrote the book. And here we are. See, for thousands of years from the history that I've read, the domain of business has been, quote, unquote, owned by men. But that's changing fast, as you know. You see a lot of women in senior positions. Like, for example, one thing I keep tabs on is my alma mater. About half the incoming class at MIT are women. Mm. I think it's maybe even more than half. Okay? Yeah. That is unheard of. And MIT is considered a tech school, right? Right. Half the people coming into STEM fields are women? Yeah, Who wonderful. thought that a few decades ago, even a few years ago? Yeah. When I heard it, I was surprised. Yes. Does that surprise you? The STEM number kind of surprises me. 
the fact that half the college enrollees are women or more than half doesn't surprise me. You've written many books, and I went and browsed through a bunch of those, and I was feeling like a kid in the candy shop, and I said, which one do I read, which ones do I not? So in your book, Mojo, which reminded me of that book, Flow, written by the University of Chicago psychologist, it's about discovering what gives you energy or takes away your energy, whether it's in your personal life or professional life. When you look at women in leadership roles, women in business, what do you think gives women their mojo? Well, you know, it's interesting. In writing the book, we really took a different approach than, I'd say, a stereotypical book for men. To write a book for men that says, basically, if you read this book, you will become rich and powerful. For most men, they think, okay, sounds good to me. For women, that really doesn't work as well. Women want to make a positive difference in the world. And the way we positioned the book is, is that, look, although there are more women in positions of high authority than there used to be, it's still a tiny, tiny minority not what it could be. And I think, you know, most of us would agree that the world would probably be better off if there was more than 27 women in the Fortune 500 or 23, whatever that number is. Mm -hmm. And so the book is written to really help women advance in their careers. And we were careful, at least we hope we were careful, not to make a value statement that says, we're not saying that you should advance in your career, that you should want to pursue higher levels of influence. On the other hand, if you do, this book is designed to help you. So that's kind of a little bit of the genesis. And I've taught a lot of classes for women. I've noticed this issue of women having a couple of themes that come out in the book. I'm a friend of three of the top thinkers on women in leadership. And I talked to my friends and I said, is this just me? Because I'm not an expert on the topic. And all three said, no, it's not just you. It's really, these are issues that women face far more than men. And that's part of the genesis of the book. Interesting. See, as you know, I run the Business Thinking Institute, and mm -hmm. what led me to do that is I've done four startups. Mm -hmm. One of my startups did really well. We went and did business in 16 countries. The next one bombed. So long story short, I found that 70% of all businesses fail. People who tend to succeed have a certain way of thinking, which I labeled as business thinking. I'll give you a simple example. Mm -hmm. I'm looking outside okay. my window. I see a clump of trees. I could look at this and say, Marshall, it's a beautiful day. Let's go for a walk. Mm -hmm. Second person, a corporate type, may say, let me go to my manager for $5,000 in the budget this year and get a bench so I can sit mm -hmm. and have lunch there every day. Right. The third person looks at it and says, let me put a fence around it and charge people a dollar to go in and sit there during lunchtime. <laughs> a fourth person may look at the same thing and say, 25, you know, 20, 50 trees, they are $50 a piece, 2,500 feet of trees, I can sell them for 10 bucks." A foot, that's $25,000 of firewood. What do I need right. to do to, to monetize this? My, I'm not judging one person or the other. I'm just saying different people look at the same thing different ways. Exactly. So the people who have business thinking are ones who you could say, look at it the last way, but I figured out that's not true. See, business thinking is simply saying, how can I add value to you, Marshall, right. and get compensated for it? Right? Right. What value right. I add is in the eyes, in your eyes. You can decide that what I'm doing is valuable or you can say, Ram, that's worthless. Right. Second part, how do I get compensated? People, I believe, wrongly think that compensation is only in the form of money because the right. world keeps score with money. What if my metric of compensation is I want to do something for Marshall and build goodwill? I want to do it because it's good for society, etc., etc. Right? Et so that's business thinking. It could be many things. 
So are women being wrongly blamed for a lack of business thinking because it doesn't have money as the compensation? Number one, women tend to not value money as much as men, especially the high end. So, you know, women on Wall Street, for example, are much more likely to leave once they're making above $30 million. Mm. Once you have a net worth, excuse me, not income. Once you have a Mm. net worth of above $30 million, they're statistically more likely to leave for men, which I don't think is necessarily a bad thing. They're sitting there Mm. going, well, I'm I'm rich, and why am I working 90 hours a week to make more money when I've already got more than I'm going to spend? Men are more likely to say, I've got 30, he's got 50, more, more, more. <laughs> so men, men are just more statistically likely to go drive for the money. I think the thing that we talk about in the book that's exciting for women, though, is the opportunity to make a difference in the world. Peter Drucker taught me a wonderful lesson. He said, uh, we're here on earth to make a positive difference, not to prove we're smart, not to prove we're right. He also said, every decision in life is made by the person who has the power to make the decision make peace with that. If I need to influence you and you have the power to make the decision, there's one word to describe you, customer. One word to mm-hmm. describe me, salesperson. You don't have to buy, you have to sell. Sell what you can sell, change what you can change. Make peace with what you cannot sell, make peace with what you can't change. Put your time and energy where it'll make a difference, though, a positive difference. Mm-hmm. So, so what you're yeah. saying is, in the case of women, the 12 habits that you talk about in the book are things right. that you need to be aware of and overcome or right. use positively in a way. Mm-hmm. that enables right. you to rise so that you who is interested in having an impact on society and the world will be able to have a larger impact on society and the world. Excellent. Well said. That is exactly the premise behind the book. And I think it's in a much more important premise or a different premise than a book for men. See, I found one other very interesting thing. You know, I, I, I flipped through the whole book and then mm-hmm. when I hit, hit page 228, I stopped. Because it reminded me of something that goes through my head quite often. Okay. Initially, I thought the premise of the book was, you know, women are, you know, the following A, B, C, D. Here are the, you know, twelve attributes of women, just to give it, make up a number. And mm-hmm. here is how these things are weaknesses. Mm-hmm. You're not saying these are weaknesses. You're saying these are things that could hurt you. But let mm-hmm. me give you another way. These things are also some of your inherent strengths. And mm-hmm. when it is your strong suit and when it's your weak suit is something that varies by context. And when you should use it as a strength and when you should use it as a weakness is something that you need to use your own judgment for. So the key message that I heard was learn to develop your judgment so that you know when your strength is a strength and when it can actually hurt you because it becomes a weakness. A couple of examples. One of the things I got out of the book, which came from Sally, not from me, was the part about don't sacrifice your career for your job. Mm, very good. That, that, that one I thought was very profound. Uh, again, I can say that I didn't come up with it. Sally came up with that one. And it really is so true. I mean, the strength is obviously trying to do a good job. We think mm-hmm. that's a positive thing, doing a good job. How can that be bad? Mm-hmm. Well, the problem is when you become excessively focused on doing a good job, what happens is you may not be developing yourself for your future. And you may be sacrificing your career. And what happens, yeah, yeah. especially with a lot of women, is that it's so focused on doing a good job that when the boss gets an assignment, you know what they say? Yes, boss, they go do it. Well, in recognition yeah, yeah. for doing that, you know what they get? More. Then they do that. Then they get more and more and more. And eventually, if they're not careful, they become, quote, indispensable. In their lower job. 
not to hire. Women. Yeah, in their old job. Yeah, now they're <laughs> indispensable in their old job, so they they get the worst of all worlds. One, the boss doesn't want them to be promoted because they become indispensable. Hmm. And then number two, they're not learning about that new job, so maybe they're not even qualified to be promoted because they spent their time doing their old job, not really learning about the new things that are going to help them in their the next job, the next level, which could be different. So I thought that it was a really interesting concept. Yeah. Now, yeah. I, I love a woman, but I had this experience in my own life. Yeah. I was teaching a class, and I got rated 4.8 out of 5 as a teacher. Mm-hmm. And I talked to my clients. His name was Rick Culley. He was head of learning and development for the New York Stock Exchange. I said, Rick, how can we make it even better? Rick said, Marshall, you're asking the wrong question. You've already ranked 4.8 out of 5. Some people don't give 5s. It's probably about as good as it's going to get, and you can try to kill yourself and raise it to a little bit. But you're asking the wrong question. You should be saying, how can I write more books? How can I develop myself? Mm-hmm. How can I learn new things? Not how can I make this tiny improvement to what's already excellent. It was such good coaching for me. And so I thought about it. That relates a lot to the book. It's a strength. I mean, you see, I had a strength. I was doing a good job, 4.8 out of 5, right? Mm-hmm. On the other hand, my preoccupation with being perfect and doing this fantastic job was actually hurting my own career. And, and that is one coaching, of the traits of women as well, right? The, much more for women than men, yes. Yeah, the pursuit of perfection. They want to do it yeah. just right. So see, the same thing that you mentioned is also a problem with people who come out of functional silos. So, for example, take an engineer who moves into management. Right. About 25% of all CEOs in the Fortune 100 are engineers, at least at one time they were. But many of them fail because they forget to stop doing one thing, being engineers. Right. (laughs) So I think what I'm hearing you say is, one, make yourself dispensable. Okay. Right. And two, develop new skills, mostly behavioral skills, as you pointed out in another one of your books, so mm-hmm. that you are able to delegate and other people, other engineers can do their job, but you know, also know how to deal with people in finance and marketing and operations, et cetera, et cetera. Exactly. One of the great leaders I've ever coached in my life was Alan Mulally. Mm-hmm. Alan was the CEO of the Ford Motor Company, did a spectacular job of turning the company around. And he was a fantastic engineer. Is when he was a first-level manager, he almost got fired because he was micromanaging all the time. He was still trying to be an engineer. And finally, he got some pretty terrible feedback that changed his life. The feedback was, if you don't change, you know, you're gone. He realized that, his point was exactly your point, that, you know, yeah, I'm a great engineer, but I can't be an engineer forever if I want to be advanced. And if you're a CEO, you manage people called knowledge workers. What's the definition of a knowledge worker? They know more about what they're doing than you do. Well, when we manage people who know more about what they're doing, we can't tell them what to do and how to do it. We have to ask, listen, and learn. And if a CEO knows more about marketing than the marketing person, more about finance than the finance person, more about HR than the HR person, the CEO doesn't have a leadership problem. They have a selection problem. They have the wrong staff. You know, we talked a little bit about Mojo and there was a parallel concept uh, that I read called Nojo. Yeah. So other, <laughs> other, I like that. other ways in which you find women seem to cook up Nojo instead of Mojo. Well, I think, you know, for many women, it's this, I talked to two yesterday. 
mm-hmm. who were both pretty angry. And we discussed this whole thing of job and career, and both of them had felt they'd fallen into this trap and were given more and more and more work, felt buried, felt overcommitted, and felt kind of unappreciated. And really, once it was kind of like, I think for both of them, a light bulb went off because they realized, you know, wait a minute, getting this 95 to a 99 requires about as much effort as getting it from a zero to a 95, and there's no return. Why am I doing this? As opposed to saying, why aren't I taking that amount of time and going back to school? Why aren't I learning something new? Why aren't I developing myself? Why aren't I building relationships? There's a lot of things I could do with this time other than handle detail number 1754. You know, in one of your other books, Triggers, your central theme was that triggers are nudges, Mm -hmm. deliberately designed environmental cues that can continuously move you in the direction of whatever your objective is. Or the opposite direction. Or because you're doing the wrong thing. Yeah, for example, I have a theory that we almost all know what we want to be in life or who we want to be. If I interviewed you, you'd describe this perfect person who's in great physical condition, wonderful with your family, and blah, 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 blah. You'd have all these wonderful things. Well, you know, we often don't turn into those people. Most of us take a few detours. And Well, you know, what happens is as we journey through life, we're bombarded by triggers. And a trigger is any stimulus that may impact our behavior. And in some cases, they push us toward becoming the person that we want to be. In most cases, they push us in the opposite direction, away from being that person that we want to be. And so the book Triggers is about, you know, kind of our delusions that we have, why it's hard to achieve things, and dealing with our environment and looking at how important our environment is in changing the way we act. I actually have an insight to this problem you just described. Often, I am trying to become who I think you think I want to be. You're trying to please the other person. Yeah, but the other person thinks that they're pleasing you. But the net result of this is I'm trying to become somebody who I'm not. In other words, it's not congruent with my values right? and who I am, my personality. It's not. And I'm uncomfortable as heck. There's a part of Mm -hmm. me that says, Marshall, get the heck out of here. But, you know, that's not what, because I say, wait a minute, this is what he wants me to be. And you're saying, this is what Ram wants to be. And we are both kind of living this lie, if you will. And I think that's what causes people to become incongruous. You know, the other thing I find, back to this Peter Drucker point, if only work on something that's going to make a positive difference, we get so wrapped up in other people's lives that we start living vicariously. Mm -hmm. Now, vicarious living, you described one form of it, and you frequently see that with the spouse, or especially the kids. You know, you see the parent go to the kiddie baseball game, they act like idiots, Mm -hmm. right? Because mm-hmm. they're living through the kid. Well, I'm here in my New York condo. One of my neighbors used to be a young woman named Lindsay Lohan. Literally, billions of hours have been spent reading that Lindsay Lohan got drunk and stoned and was in a car wreck. Why do people waste their lives reading about Lindsay Lohan? When I teach my classes, you know what I tell people now? I said, if you ever think my neighbor Lindsay Lohan is a loser, let me tell you one thing. She's not wasting her life reading about you. <laughs> <laughs> And I always tell people, I I think in two-by-twos, and I tell people that information could either be for entertainment or for knowledge. If you're doing the former, you're wasting your life. If you're doing it for the latter reason, maybe you're moving forward. Yeah, you know, and we live in a world right now where the average kid that's flunking out of school spends 55 hours a week on non-academic media. It's an addiction. Yeah, yeah. It's terrible. 
And yeah. by the way, I'll give you a trivia question. Going into last year, what was the number one most visited site on YouTube? On YouTube? I have no idea. I don't spend much time there. Well, you're very wise. PewDiePie. And by the way, PewDiePie is you're watching a racist, sarcastic Swedish guy play video games. Do you know play video games. Do? So it's a spectator play video sport. Games. No, the kid is not playing the video games. They're watching someone play video games. Oh, wow. And by the way, do you know how many visits to PewDiePie as of last year? No. 17 billion visits. With a B. Wow. With a B. Oh, but, but number two, of course, was much more educational. You know what the number two most visited site was after PewDiePie? No. World Wrestling. <laughs> it's funny you say that. I was talking to my daughter the other day, and I told her, I said, I just realized something, and she said, what? She said, do you understand that most media that people partake is staged for them? So you go look at a movie, you go look at a television show, it's rarely what happened, it's what other people want you to see. Yes, and this is where they pump your brain with their values, their beliefs, their mental models. And, and then yes. you say, gee, you know, what's wrong with society? Those two numbers I gave you, that 17 and 16 billion, that mm -hmm. answers a couple of questions to me. What's wrong? And that's, that's very wrong. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a lot of lives being wasted for nothing. Not even yeah. good values, by the way. So in, in your last book that you wrote, What Got You Here Won't Get You There, you pointed out a key message that behaviors are more important at senior levels than yes. knowledge and skills. Right. So because you're already presumed to have the knowledge and skills to even get to that point. I went to the Sloan School. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, there was very little time spent on the psychology of success. So I have my own business success framework, which mm -hmm. includes knowledge and skills. It includes how to make it happen, execution. He talks about the need to be legacy-minded, which I found from talking to hundreds of people. But then sure. it also includes the psychology of business success. It's important right. as to what your personality is. It's important as to what your values and beliefs are, etc. Mm -hmm. Why is that missing? And why do they end up having to come to a coach like you after they get to that point point? say, I'm scrambling, no, I need to figure out how to get to the CEO spot. Let me call Marshall. Well, you know, I think what happens is uh, one of the great people I've ever coached, as I mentioned, my friend Alan Mulally, he said, for the great individual achiever, it is all about me. For the great leader, it is all about them. And it's hmm. hard to make this transition from the great individual achiever, which is the great leader, which is all about them. And every time you get promoted, you move more and more down this road. When you get to the CEO level, trying to be the smartest person in the room is one of the worst things you can do, not one of the mm -hmm. best things mm -hmm. you can do. And it's mm -hmm. very hard to make this transition. So basically, when you went to MIT, look at the people you're dealing with. They were a bunch of hyperachievers. Mm -hmm. They were people that tried to prove they were smart constantly. You know the IIT joke? How do you know the graduate of IIT is smart in the Institute of Technology? How do you, how do you know they're smart? And the answer yeah. is, mm -hmm. spend five minutes with them and they tell you how smart they are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, you were brought up with, my guess is, a chronic need to prove how smart you were. A chronic yeah. need to prove you're clever, prove you're smart, to pass tests over and over to achieve. Over and over and over. You were so reinforced for that. Any human or animal will replicate behavior that's followed by positive reinforcement. The more successful we become, the more positive reinforcement we get, and the more we fall into something called superstition trap. 
What is mm-hmm. the superstition trap? I behave this way. I am mm-hmm. successful. Therefore, it must be successful because I behave this way. What type of engineer were you, by the way? I have an undergrad in mechanical engineering, and I have yes. a master's in underwater robotics. Robotics. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. Have you ever journeyed through life looking for logic and been puzzled because you don't find it? Has that happened to you in the past? When I was young, I tried to logically answer everything and anything my parents said. I would tell my father, you are illogical, Dad. And by the way, did your friends and family members love you because of this or in spite of this? They loved me because I did things that nobody else in the family had done. But they didn't love you because you constantly proved they were wrong. I didn't see that part. I only saw the accolades that were coming because I come from a large family. Between my father and mother, I have 50 first cousins. Huge family. I was the first person to come to the U.S., first person to go to MIT. I was a rock star, and it got to my head. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) That's very understandable. I noticed in one of your other books, you know, people always have a to-do list. You say it's more important to create a to-stop list. Peter Drucker taught me that. He said, we spend a lot of time teaching leaders what to do. We don't spend enough time teaching leaders what to stop. And he said, half the leaders he meets, they don't need to learn what to do. They need to learn what to stop. (laughs) That one comment led to my book, What Got You Here Won't Get You There. So that's Peter Drucker to thank for that. Let me give you some data that supports what you came up with. I've done four startups. I'm on the fourth one Mm -hmm. now. The second one did well. We did business in 16 countries. Third mm-hmm. one bombed. And when it bombed, I picked up the phone. I, I said, oh, why, why did it bomb? You know, it couldn't happen to me. How could I fail? Et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. I called all the experts, you know, people in big consulting firms, big business schools, et cetera. And they all kept saying uh, the same thing repeatedly. You lacked capital. You lacked the right team. You lacked the right technology. You lacked the right mm-hmm. plan. You've heard all of this. Somehow they didn't resonate with me, meaning... Yeah, they could have been contributing factors, but it didn't account for the the colossal implosion of the venture. Mm-hmm. So I lost a lot of money. So then I quickly looked at a team after about nine weeks of thinking, and I saw that one, they said I lacked something, and two, whatever they said I lacked was external to me. People, mm-hmm. technology, uh, the right plan, etc. And then I also realized that there was somebody peddling services for each one of those. Somebody selling technology, somebody selling recruiting, somebody selling consulting service. So then I said, let me go look at the failure rate of businesses over the last 20 years. Mm -hmm. Guess what? It hasn't changed much. That raised a flag in my head. So I'll give you a very simple analogy. Let's say you're my advisor. I'm Mm -hmm. your advisee. You're the one giving me Mm -hmm. all this advice. Mm -hmm. In human terms, you are smarter than your father, who is smarter than his parents, who is smarter than his parents, etc. So in human history, you're one of the most intelligent advisors, period. On the other side of the table, I'm one of the most intelligent advisees in human history. Mm-hmm. Our understanding of how to succeed in business is the most advanced, technology is most advanced, etc., etc. You would think that the trend line of business failures would be pointed downwards, but it's not. So I said, why? So then I said, the team here is lacking something and external. I'm going to do some inversion thinking. I flipped the two. And I said, mm-hmm. what if I wasn't lacking it but have it? And what mm-hmm. if it was not external, but internal to me. Are there things within me that caused me to fail? What did you light, determine? Light bulbs started going off. I came up mm. with four, six, nine, eleven. 11. Now it's at 13. 
I call them the silent killers of success. Oh, good. Give me, give me some of the highlights. I'll, I'll give you a very key thing. Many okay. people who go into business have no desire to be in business. They develop some technology and they say, I love my technology. It's going to change the world. But they have no idea of being in business. They lack what I call business thinking. So they have a thought process which hurts them, which is anytime you have a transaction, let's say I'm doing something for you, I have to ask myself two questions as a compound question. How can I add value to Marshall mm -hmm. and get compensated for it? They always think the technology that I have, what I've figured out, how I can code, whatever they have, is the greatest thing since sliced bread. And Marshall ought to understand and accept how great I am and how great my invention is. Right. Which often doesn't work. Two, they don't stop and say, I need to get compensated for it. Many of these engineers right. simply want the accolades. They, stop, they don't stop and realize that unless they get compensated, there is no business to run. That fundamental lack of business thinking destroys a lot of people who get into business. Another classic one, many people presume success. I have a degree from so-and-so place. You know, mm -hmm. I am tall, I am male, I'm handsome. My father's, mm -hmm. uh, you know, my last name, my family has so much money or I, whatever their thing is, they presume success. And as you know, it's kind of like going to bat in baseball. Every mm -hmm. time you go to bat, you will either connect with the ball or not. Just because you connected last time doesn't guarantee that you'll connect this time. That's right. So those are three of them. And I have 13 of those. And then I went to and got 320 business people to take a survey that I crafted. It had a Cronbach Alpha of 0.8, including 75 millionaires validating this thinking. So people fail because of what they already have within them mm -hmm. long before they fail because of what they lack. Right. I mean, I can relate to that in my own life. In my coaching, I don't get paid unless my clients get better. Better is not judged by me or them. It's judged by everyone around them. <laughs> so there's a great way to test to some beliefs what they're saying. You can ask a person one simple question and instantly determine their level of belief, which I've never seen the question fail. Simple question is, do you want to bet on it? And if they mm -hmm. say, I believe it, but I wouldn't bet on it, they don't believe it. They say, here's <laughs> the money, they believe it. It's a simple test. Well, I bet on it every time. So I've also analyzed my own failure. Mm -hmm. And when I failed, you know, I found I could look one place and always find the source of my failure. One place. And you know where it is? It's in a mirror. Yeah. And I'm looking at mirror and I am staring at the source of my failure. <laughs> it's pretty much always this guy in the mirror that's screwed up. My own no, but, but human life. nature, Marshall, as you know, is to always blame some external thing or external person. Right. Anybody other than me. Well, I do something every day that's in a couple of my books called the Daily Question Process. Mm -hmm. I would highly recommend this to all of your listeners. I'm going to teach everyone something that takes three minutes a day, costs nothing will help me get better at almost anything. You know, people are skeptical. Three minutes a day costs nothing. Help me get better at almost anything. Sounds mm -hmm. too good to be true. Mm -hmm. Half the people that start doing this quit within two weeks. And they do not quit because it doesn't work. They quit because it does work. What I'm teaching next is very easy to understand and incredibly difficult to do. Get out a spreadsheet. Mm -hmm. On one column, write down a series of questions represent what's most important in your life. Could it be friends, family, health, business, whatever it is for you. You get to write your own questions. Mm -hmm. Every question is answered with a yes, a no, or a number. Yes is recorded as a one, no is a zero, or a number. At the end of the week, you have seven boxes across, one for every day of the week. The little spreadsheet will give you a report card. And I've done this for years. I'll, if you try it, I'll make a prediction. The report card at the end of the week will not be as beautiful as the corporate values plaque you see stuck up on the wall. If you do this every day, you quickly learn that life is incredibly easy to talk.
life is just mm-hmm. incredibly difficult to live. And when you do this every day, you don't look at your talking values, you look at their living values. Mm-hmm. They're not nearly as pretty as the talk values. And I pay a woman every day to make sure I do this. Somebody said, why do you have a woman call you every day to make sure you do this? Don't you know the theory about how to change behavior? Mm-hmm. I wrote the theory about how to change behavior. That's why I have a woman call me. I know how difficult it is. You see, my name is Marshall Goldsmith. I get ranked number one leadership thinker in the world and number one executive coach in the world. I pay a woman to call me every day on the phone just to listen to me read questions I wrote and provide answers I wrote. Why do I do this? Very simple. My name is Marshall Goldsmith. I am too cowardly to do this by myself. I'm too undisciplined to do this by myself. I need help, and it's okay. You know what I've learned the last three or four years? We all need help, and it's okay. If you've got anything that you've been planning to fix for 20 or 30 years and you haven't got around to fixing it yet, yourself. Yes, yes, yeah, absolutely. So living the values is what is difficult, and that's what leads to very difficult. Now, okay, Ram, are you ready to repeat after me? My name is Mm -hmm. Ram. My name is Ram. I have some things I need to fix. I have some things I have to fix. I haven't fixed some of these for 20 years. I have not fixed some of these for 20 years. Who am I kidding? I'm not going to fix this by myself in the future. Who am I kidding? I'm not going to fix this in the future. By myself. By myself. I need help. I need help. And it's okay. It's okay. And it's okay. How many of the top 10 tennis players have a coach? Everyone. 10? Of course they do. Twyla Tharp, the world's greatest choreographer. She's had the same personal trainer for 27 years. Why? My name is Twyla Tharp. I'm too undisciplined to do this by myself. I need help, and it's okay. There's a great book called The Checklist Manifesto, published by Dr. Atul Gawande from Harvard Medical Mm -hmm. School. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you read the book, but it's very sobering. If you go in for a surgery and the nurse asks the doctor, there's a simple question for the surgery, the odds on unneeded engine plummet, the death rate is cut by two-thirds. Mm-hmm. The huge majority of hospitals do not allow the nurse to ask the doctor the questions. And you know why the doctor question. makes a mistake? That's the number one silent killer. He presumes yeah. success. Exactly. He thinks he's above that. He's ashamed. The doctor yeah. is ashamed to say, I need help and it's okay. Yeah. One thing I'm very proud of, you saw in the book Triggers, 27 major CEOs endorsed that book. The reason I'm proud is 30 years ago, no CEO would admit to having a coach. They would have been ashamed of having a coach, embarrassed. Why and are I'm, people still reluctant to hire a coach? Well, it's changing. They're a lot less reluctant than they used to be. You know, and it's, that's changed a whole lot. So I find a huge change in that area. But I think it's ego. It's, we're ashamed to admit we need help. We, we feel like we shouldn't need help. I need to be independent. I should be able to do it all on my own. I shouldn't mm-hmm. have to have a coach. I shouldn't have to have someone to help me. I'm better than that. Well, not really. Let's talk about women for a moment. I've noticed when I go on the web and I say, you know, you know I talk to you about the need for business thinking, right? Mm-hmm. And I have uh, models I put together on business thinking for people in general, business thinking for techies, business thinking for lawyers, for doctors. Mm-hmm. And I'm putting together one for women. Okay. Good. When I look at it, you know what I'm finding? Most women seem to turn to a bevy of these websites, which are coaches who are Mm -hmm. all women. Mm -hmm. And I wonder, it doesn't take to be a man to succeed in the business world, but Mm -hmm. does it necessarily require a woman to be your coach in order for you to be successful? Yeah, I agree with you. I think it's good to have multiple perspectives. So I don't think it's bad to have a woman advisor. On the other hand, I don't think it should be exclusively women advisors. 
correct. See, I'm not suggesting it's bad to have a woman advisor at all. In fact, my last two coaches were women. Right, but, I agree with you. It just it, it doesn't have to be exclusively women. Yeah, I see a preponderance of women coaches. And I called up some local women's groups and said, you know what, I've done this study and I have the silent killers and I've kind of figured out what business thinking is. I have a framework for that. And you know how many people have taken me up on that? None. Because there is this thing that I need to be coached by women because you're a guy. What would you understand? Is that one of the things that impedes women? I think that type of thinking is, would impede anyone, man or woman. That makes a lot of sense. So let me ask you a rather large question. You've coached several thousand people over time. What have you found to differentiate truly successful people from the many who are not? Well, I'm going to answer that in a couple of different ways. First is how do you define success? I don't really define success in terms of external achievement and all that kind of stuff, particularly. To me, what's important in life? Because I've done many programs with retiring CEOs. I've done about six. And we talk about what matters in life as they face the end of their career and then, you know, and the end of their lives. One is take care of your health, because if you don't have that, the rest of it's sort of irrelevant. Two is you need enough money to have kind of a middle-class lifestyle, but you don't need a fortune. After a certain point, more money doesn't lead to more happiness or meaning. Mm-hmm. Then after assuming you're healthy, you have at least a middle level of income, you need to have great relationships with people you love. It's very important. Mm-hmm. And I tell people, never worship the corporate God. Don't sacrifice mm-hmm. your friends and family for work, because if you do, you will regret it later. And then assuming you have enough money, you're healthy, you've got a good relationship with people you love, two things matter, and you need both of these simultaneously, happiness and meaning. And by happiness, I mean you need to enjoy the process of what you're doing. You need to mm-hmm. look forward to it. It makes feel good about it. And meaning is what you're doing, the results of what you're doing matter if they're important to you. And you need both of these simultaneously. As you mentioned earlier, if you just pursue sort of amusement without meaning, mm-hmm. after a while your life becomes empty. I mean, how, how many games of bad golf can you play with old men talking about gallbladder surgeries? You know, after a while yeah. it's empty. There's nothing there. After the ninth cruise, the cruise director jokes are not that funny anymore. On the other hand, if you do something meaningful, but you don't enjoy it, you're a victim or a martyr. So you might be doing good, but you're not having a great life. These are two things people need to experience simultaneously, happiness and meaning. So that's the first part of the answer to that question. Now, in my Mm -hmm. job, I help very successful people achieve positive change in behavior. I'm not an expert on all elements of corporate executives. For example, I don't know about the strategy. I don't know about the business part of the business. I'm not an expert Mm -hmm. on those things at all. My area is behavioral change. Mm -hmm. In order to achieve behavioral change, three things to me stand out. One is you have to have courage because it takes Mm -hmm. courage to look in the mirror. It's easier not to look in the mirror. Why is this daily question process so hard for so many people? It takes courage to evaluate yourself every day and look in the mirror. It's hard, painful. The second thing is that it takes humility. You know what I've learned as a coach? I can't help anyone get better who's already perfect. If they're already perfect, they certainly don't need me. But you have to admit, you, you know, I can get better. I need help, right? Mm-hmm. Well, if you don't need help, why are you talking to me? Mm-hmm. And then the third thing is discipline. The discipline required to do that day-to-day follow-up and the work required to change. So I find if people have the courage, they have the humility, they have the discipline, they get better. If they don't, they probably don't. in all of your experience, you've talked to oodles of people. What is the one Mm -hmm. thing you heard, you know, from any of them or from your own family, friends, 
that guides your life to this day? Well, I'm a Buddhist. So a lot of my philosophy on life is Buddhist philosophy. I'll give you one exercise, because I think the important thing is not so much what guides my philosophy, but a good model for everyone to guide their own philosophy. And that is, since my favorite coaching exercise is take a deep breath. Mm -hmm. Imagine you're 95 years old and you're just getting ready to die. Mm -hmm. Right before you die, you're given a beautiful gift. The mm -hmm. ability to go back in time and talk to the person that's listening to me right now. Mm. The ability to help this person be a better leader, much more important. The ability to help this person have a better life. What advice would that wise old person have for the you that's listening to me right now? My suggestion is, whatever that is, do that. In terms of a performance appraisal, that's the only one that's going to matter. That old person says you did the right thing, you did. That old person says you made a mistake, you did. You don't really have to impress anyone else. Some mm -hmm. friends of mine interviewed all folks who were dying and got to ask this question. What advice would you have? Three mm -hmm. themes. On the personal side, theme number one, be happy now. Not next week, not next month, not next year. Mm -hmm. Be happy now. The great Western disease is sweeping the world. The great Western disease is I will be happy when. When I get the money status BMW condominium, I will be happy mm -hmm. when. Mm -hmm. We all have the same win. That old person is win. Second advice from old people, friends and families we discussed, don't get so wrapped up in your work, you sacrifice the people that love you. When you're 95 years old, you look around your deathbed, none of your coworkers are going to be waving goodbye. Mm -hmm. Friends and family, the only people care. Mm -hmm. And number three, if you have a dream, go for it. Take them go for it when you're 45, it may not when you're 85. It doesn't have to be a big one, maybe a small one. Go to New Zealand, speak Spanish, play guitar. Other people think your dream is goofy. Who cares? It's not their dream, it's yours. It's not their life, it's your life. Business advice isn't that much different. Number one, life is short. Have fun. Number two, do whatever you can do to help people. And the main reason to help people has nothing to do with money or status or getting ahead. The main reason to help people is much deeper. The 95-year-old Jew will be proud of it because you did and disappointed if you don't. And the final advice is also the same. Go for it. Old people, we almost never regret the risk we take and fail. We all regret the risk we fail to take. So that would be it. Marshall, many thanks for taking time to come on Business Thinking Radio. I no, enjoyed our you. discussion profusely. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. Absolutely. So thanks for listening to Business Thinking Radio. If you'd like to comment on this episode, please send an email to podcast at businessthinking.com. This is Ram Ayer signing off. Thank you for listening to the Ram Ayer Podcast. Every week, we bring you the thought-provoking and practical conversations to help you become better, smarter, and more successful, helping you achieve your personal greatness. All from the perch of Ram Iyer, the thought leader, author, keynote speaker, workshop leader, and mentor. If you want to comment on this episode, please email us at podcasts at mitramaya.com. If you want to listen to previous episodes, please visit www.mitramaya.com forward slash podcasts or find the Ram Aya podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher and wherever fine podcasts are uploaded.